Hello, Gathering Midtown fam. Here we are. It's the last day of Black History Month and um, our fourth and final segment of uh, our highlighting Black voices this month. Um, in the previous weeks, if you've been here, I've been giving you guys a Black leader uh, of the past, of church's past, a uh, Black leader of the church's present, and a book review and a movie review. Um, so uh, I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have. It really has been a treat for me. I've learned a lot, um, and I hope you guys are... are um, uh, and enjoying what I've what I've learned and what I'm what I'm here to share. So uh, let's get into it. Um, I'm going to switch some things up today. Um, I'm going to start with the book and the movie, and then I'm going to lead into our um, Black leaders from the past and present. So here we go. Um, our book this week is one that you've heard of before from Drew, um, Reading While Black by Esau Macaulay. Um, I'm finally getting into this. I picked it up a while ago and I'm fi finally um, uh, getting into this book. And listen, um, I I just had to recommend it again. Um, first chapter. Let me let me just put it this way. Uh, if if someone is uh, uh, teaming up scripture and the words of Andre 3000, I think that's pretty dope and that's pretty legit in my book. Um, no, but in all serious, in all seriousness, um, uh, Esau Macaulay does an exquisite job of tapping into, um, number one, what it's like to be black in the American South and, um, the hope that comes with, uh, the black church tradition when it comes to the pursuit of justice. Um, it, really also uh, connects Black liberation theology and James Cone, um, who we spoke of last week. So um, it's really beautifully written. Um, it's so, so great. You guys um, pick this book up. You will not regret it. Get it like today, like right now. Not, not, not right now, but today. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. So uh, our movie, you know, this one is a tough watch. I'm not going to lie to you, but it is so necessary and so well done, um, to understanding the history of why there is so much, um, oppression even still today. Um, 13th on Netflix, uh, documentary. Um, it is so, 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 so powerful, very intense, but again, such a ne necessary watch. Um, it just gives an in-depth look um, at the prison system in the United States and how that reveals um, our nation's history uh, with racial inequality. Um, so again, this is, uh, I, I don't want to give too much away because I really want you guys to watch it because I think it's that important. Um, no spoilers, right? So um, I really want you guys to see this for yourselves. Um, keep in mind that it is TVMA. So um, just real, some really strong images that we that we see here, really strong topics um, that might be a little bit too intense for our little littles or even our middle littles. Um, maybe if you have some like older kiddos, it might be um, something uh, to watch with them, but uh, at, use it at your own discretion. Um, maybe watch it first and then like if you feel 
uh, the spirit leading you to share that with your older kiddos, then, um, then go for it. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's get into our, uh, black leaders of the present and past. So we're going to start with, uh, Carlos Whitaker. He is an author, uh, former worship leader, um, turned author, which is, which is interesting. Um, disruptor influencer. Um, I first heard about Carlos during last summer when everything kind of, um, started to go down with, um, Ahmaud Arbery, um, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, all of those names that I'm not mentioning as well. Things just kind of started to um, come to a head and um, there started to be riots. And I was just really looking for some hope and um, just was doing a mindless scroll on Instagram and came across a post that a friend had shared. Um, and man, this guy really just blew me away. Um, he is so hopeful in a time that feels really um, sometimes hopeless. And um, he's so helpful in the way that he um, puts things, uh, the way that he says stuff is really down to earth and really um, uh, does so in a way that is just so helpful. Um, and he does not shy away from what is true about um, race and um, what is true about our country and what is true about, most importantly, our God. Um, he calls himself a hope dealer, which I love. I think that's so great. Um, and uh, he does have a book out that just came out not too long ago um, called Enter Wild. Um, I haven't read it, but I, I, I've read a bunch of reviews. I've got like way too many books right now, um, so I can't get any more books. Um, but uh, yeah, it's called Enter Wild. Um, sold like 50,000 copies or something. And, um, it's probably pretty legit. So if you're looking for some hope, check this guy out, Carlos Whitaker. Um, you can find him on Instagram. Uh, I love everything, all of his content that he's putting out right now. Um, is just so hopeful and, um, so truthful. So check him out, Carlos Whitaker. His book is Enter Wild. Um, let's support this guy in every way that we can. And lastly, so um, this Black History Month, I've been really thinking about um, local Black history, San Antonio's Black history. And um, for whatever reason, God's been kind of like stirring that in my heart, a desire to know um, who was involved in past equality movements here in town, um, what happened during that time, all of the above. So um, the Lord brought me to a man named Claude Black Jr. Um, Black was born in 1916, um, was the pastor of the Eastside, historic Eastside Church, uh, Mount Zion First Baptist Church. Um, he got that appointment in um, 1949 and was pastoring there until 1998. That is so long. Um, he was known for, um, bringing leaders to speak at, uh, at the pulpit, uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, Thurgood Marshall, um, civil rights lawyer, Percy Sutton, uh, Barbara Jordan. Um, and he was 
one of the first Texas Senate um, Texas senators after uh, Reconstruction. Uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, he was a key figure um, in our state. Um, he had correspondence with uh, Dr. King, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, quite often and is credited for, get this, this is amazing. He is credited for founding the city's first black credit union. That's, I'm not sure that we really understand how amazing that is. That is um, bringing um, a different level of prosperity to a community that really, really needed it at the time. That's amazing. Um, just mind boggling the things that this man did. Um, he led many peaceful marches and um, sit-ins in the 1950s and 60s, and he served four terms on the San Antonio City Council from 1973 to 1978, and was this city's first black pro black mayor pro tem. Pretty amazing. Um, so this man was a titan of the faith and did so many things for our community. And I think the reason that God was like stirring these things in my heart um, and, and leading me to research the life of Claude Black was to remind me and ultimately all of us of this, um, the movement for equality and justice here in our city, the roots are deep. Um, the roots in our community for those movements are deep. They're right here in our backyard. God has already been at work on these things um, for a long time. So that tells me a couple of things. Number one, that he um, is always on time with these things. He's always working on these things. And um, he cares about these things um, even though I care about him a lot, he cares about them way more than I do. So um, I wonder, um, church fam, I wonder as Black History Month comes to a close, how are we going to carry out the legacy of men and women like Claude Black in our own community? Um, he was born here in San Antonio and he did amazing things where he was planted and so I guess that's my prayer for us as we um, close out Black History Month um, and these uh, segments um, is that God would reveal to us um, the roots of our city, the roots that have already been um, established in our community for equi equity and justice and established so um, by the faith community. Um that work has already been uh, being done. So, so where is God calling us to join him? Where, where is God calling us to say, um, where is he saying to us, come, come on, come with me, come join me, come, uh, come play um, in, in this work with me. Um, so that's how we make it all year round. That's how we get into this work all year round and not just make Black History Month um, a month long thing. I make, let's make it a year long, a lifetime thing. Um, church, thank you so much for, um, giving me the opportunity to do this. This was so much fun for me. I've got a bunch more recommendations. So if you, 
um, uh, are curious about any anything else or um, have um, are, are searching for any more uh, books or movies or um, just figures that you want to learn more about, please holla at your girl. I'm here um, and uh, ready to share um, the knowledge that I have and to learn from you. I'd love to hear some of the um, the leaders um, that you look up to, um, the leaders that have meant something to you, books, uh, movie recommendations, all of that. I, I want to hear from you too. So um, thank you so much. Have a blessed and joyful day and um, we will see you next time. Bye. Today is the second Sunday of the season of Lent. And I've heard from many of you who are living into the spiritual practice and are experimenting and more than anything are finding new and simple ways to draw near to God. And I just want to say, well done. That's good stuff. I'm loving hearing how you're playing with this. Uh, this Lent, we're using the language, hug your cactus as a creative way to encourage you to turn to the issues in your life and surrender them to God, whether that's sin or whether that's pain or wounds or suffering, uh, anything in your life that is painful, uh, we want to encourage you to do what we call hug the cactus. If you don't understand what that is, we talked last week all about that. I encourage you to go and uh, check that out. If you've been around any spiritual direction or counseling, you may have heard that phrase or a similar phrase called sit in your weeds. Or if you've been in the 12 steps or in recovery, you've heard the first step is admitting you have a problem. And so hug your cactus, sit in your weeds, admit you have a problem. They all say the same thing. In order to find healing and freedom and deliverance, you must first turn to your problem and face it. And in a very odd way, embrace it so that you can actually surrender it with all of its pain and all of its hangups to Jesus. All of us have uh, one of two postures when it comes to facing God, facing our sin, facing our cactus, or even facing one another. We either hide from God in our sin, or we bring our sin to God and we hide in Him. Where are you right now? Are you hiding from God and running from God and trying to cover your sin from God and from others? Or are you hiding in him, allowing him to cover your sin, allowing him to deal with the cactus in your life? I know the phrase hiding in him seems a little obscure and Christian cliche, and we'll get to that later. But today, in a very kind of indirect way, I want to point out that pride is one of the main obstacles we face when hugging our cactus or dealing with the pain in our life. And that's because pride is designed to keep us from coming clean before God and others. Pride keeps us from hugging our proverbial cactus. And usually when I teach on pride and humility, I begin with, with giving everyone a two-question quiz, and uh, it's kind of funny, and I'll just explain it. I won't do it here, but... Uh, when I've done this before, uh, I, I cut out little pieces of paper, kind of almost like the size of double a business card, and it just has two questions. And the first question is, do you have pride, yes or no? Second question is, do you have humility, yes or no? Pass these out to the church. 
and um, give everyone you know a pen or pencil and say, hey, you're not turning this in. This is just between you and God. Answer this honestly. And you know everyone kind of does the, the two-question quiz. Do you have pride, yes or no? Do you have humility, yes or no? Maybe you can do this mentally right now. There, you've answered the questions. And then uh, after, after everyone's answered the questions, I'd throw a quote up on the screen that says, um, the person who has pride doesn't see that they have pride because they have pride. And the person who has humility isn't aware that they have humility because they're not even thinking of themselves because they're humble. And usually whenever I show that, I look out and there's people uh, like changing their answers and scribbling as as this hilarious uh, and also kind of brutal um, kind of process of when we aren't aware of the pride in our life, it's probably because we have pride in our life. That's that's the catch-22 of pride. And the moment that we begin to think we're humble and have humility is probably the exact moment we, we've lost it because the humble person doesn't, doesn't think whether they're humble or not because they're humble. And so uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to Psalms chapter 32. Psalm 32. As you turn there, I'd like to note that Psalm 32 has a connection with Psalm 51. If you know Psalm 51, you know the weight and the depth of that. We, we read Psalm 51 on our Ash Wednesday a service that was online. If you don't know Psalm 51, that's okay. I encourage you to look it up. It's one of my favorite Psalms. And uh, Psalm 51 is this confession. Um, it's really a public confession that, that King David makes um, in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba coming to, to light. And the context of that whole ordeal is in First uh, Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, not 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. If you never read that, I encourage you to sometime read 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I know uh, kids are uh, maybe in earshot of this, and so I'm going to try to be as PG as possible while uh, summarizing the, the context of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which will make Psalm 51 make sense, which will make Psalm 32 make sense. And so it's important that you have this in your mind. Um, but, but essentially, um, in, in 2 Samuel 11, what we learn is that King David, uh, one day, instead of going out into battle, which would have been his job, he decides to go up to the roof. And that was a very intentional strategic decision because everyone would know when women bathe and where they bathe. And so it wasn't just that King David was getting some fresh air. Um, he knew that that was the time when women would go out on their roofs and bathe. And so he's intentionally seeking out um, that form of, of sexual pleasure. And there's like words, you know, now there's Google and, and, and things uh, but for King David, he didn't have Google or magazines. He uh, he had his roof. And so he's engaging in that type of behavior, which is like problem number one. Problem number two is that he sees Bathsheba and he feels entitled to her. <laughs> and the, uh, the text says that he actually sends some, some messengers to go and get her. And if you've ever heard of David and Bathsheba, you know kind of what happens. Um, what's often, when this stories often told in church, it's usually described in, in the context of um, adultery or, or David had an affair with Bathsheba, which is really an unfortunate sanit sanitizing of the, the story. 
Um, if you read the text, the word says he took her. And there's a word that starts with the letter R that we would use today to describe what, what, when a man takes a woman. King David does that, um, and he, he engages in this abuse. Uh, you know, we live in a Me Too world now, and this story has just a fresh uh, sharpness to it because we see Bathsheba would have been in the Me Too movement. And this is right here in the scriptures. And, uh, and uh, so um, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Her husband is out to battle. And David now has a, another problem on his hands, which is he, his son's going to get found out. And so he conspires to have the troops withdraw in the heat of battle to where her husband would die. Um, and so now <laughs> King David, uh, among other things, has now added conspiracy to murder and to cover things up to his list of sins. He, he is cultivating uh, a... Uh, zero scape garden of cacti in his life. The crazy thing about the story is he almost gets away with it. Um, it happened. He was able to do this to Bathsheba. He was able to cover it up by having her husband killed. And either nobody knew or probably more likely there was such a system of the hierarchy at work that if people knew there's nothing they could do because he's the king. So What's fascinating about the story is the Lord sees it all and is not pleased. And so he sends the prophet Nathan to go to David to confront him. If I'm just assume, I'm guessing that uh, Nathan really didn't like that assignment. And uh, given the nature that King David had just conspired to to, to kill a man, to cover up his sin. It's reasonable to assume that Nathan thought he could suffer the same, um, the same feat. So he goes. He's brilliant. He tells King David a parable about a rich man taking advantage of a poor man and instead of sacrificing, um, the, said the rich man sacrificing his lamb for a guest, he takes the only lamb that the poor man has and he sacrifices it. At the end of the story, uh, in 2 Samuel, King David stands up, and he's very angry, the text says, and he demands justice. And, and he actually, uh, he, he says, this man um, ought to be you know, dealt with, and he should restore, uh, I think it says four times what was, what was harmed. Actually, King David actually makes a case for reparations here. This is like a fascinating, you know, today these are all trigger words. you got a man in power and in position engaging in abuse and hiding it and covering it up. We could never relate these days to, to people doing this. <laughs> nervous laughter in the other room. Um, but when David sees that someone else does it, he is angered and he demands justice and he demands some form of repairing the damage. And he says, this man ought to be dealt with. And Nathaniel, this is like <laughs> one of the greatest parts of the story. Uh, sorry, not Dan, Nathan. Looks to King David and he says, you the man. You the man, David. You're the one who did this. 
And David has a choice. He could either lean into his pride and double down, and he could, like that, have Nathan dealt with and cover it up and continue cultivating the cacti. But David doesn't do it. He humbles himself, and instead of covering his sin and hiding from God, he does the opposite. He runs to God. He confesses his sin. He allows God to cover his sin, and he finds that God is a hiding place. Okay, and out of result of that, he writes Psalm 51. So if you've never read Psalm 51 with that history in the back of your mind, go read Psalm 51. Okay, so Psalm 32 is, the, is kind of behind the scenes of how David was feeling in this process. So many people don't read 32 and 51 together because, you know, they're, uh, what, 19? can't do math on, in front of a camera. They're like, you know, separated. But it's a fascinating testimony that uh, David gives us in Psalms 32. So let's, let's read it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah. Now, when you, when you read Psalms and you, you see that word, Selah, what it means is just stop and don't keep reading and let that sink in and think about it. So I want to point out a couple of things here and then just give you some time to Selah, to just let that sink in. Um, the first two verses here kind of start with a beatitude. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And I'd love for you just to hold onto that word covered here, that he is speaking, that it is blessed. You are blessed. You are happy when God covers your sin. And that word will be mirrored here in a moment. And he, he also says, blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the, the, in the, the, the story I described of King David, there's a lot of deceit there, right? And then think about, he's writing his experience here. When I kept silent, when I refused to hug the cactus, in other words, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then check out verse four. For day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. You know, sometimes we feel the heavy hand of God and we resent it. And we try to do all sorts of things to, to get away from the feeling of the heavy hand of God. Do you feel the heavy hand of God in your life somewhere? Is there a sin that you have not dealt with? That you're, you just feel the agitation and the heavy hand of God coming upon you? And he says, my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. We'll put this on the screen. I want to give you just a moment to sit and to, to, to pause and to sailor and to just allow God's spirit to highlight some, something here to just chew on and meditate on.
verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In other words, here in verse 5, when we get Selah again, okay, we'll do this again, is David is saying, when he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, he's saying, I hugged my cactus, and I gave that cactus to you. And then he, remember when he uh, said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered here, he says, I did not cover my iniquity. And it's this great kind of contrast of, um, are you trying to cover your sin? Are you trying to cover your cactus? Or are you allowing God to do that? And, and God doesn't just cover, he removes it, you know, right? He washes us, he didn't just like, you know, hide it. He deals with it. So we'll put this on the screen. We read Selah, and I want to allow you some time to just pause to let this sink in, what David is saying here in verse 5. In verse uh, 6 and 7, we get some instruction. David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. That's very important. You could highlight that or hold on to that word. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I love how David here talks about praying to God and finding that God is a hiding place, which is different than what David was doing prior. He was running from God. He was hiding from God. He was trying to cover his sin and then as we see this hint that through prayer, through confession, through really Holy Spirit confrontation through the prophet, David goes from hiding from God to hiding in God. He goes from covering his sin to allowing God to cover his sin. And he goes from holding out to being held. And Psalms 32 is his testimony of how he was feeling. He was he just felt the heavy hand of God when he was hiding. But through confession, through acknowledgement, through prayer, he found the mercy of God and that God was a hiding place and that God was a refuge and that God actually surrounded him with shouts of deliverance instead of shouts of shame. Now, pride isn't mentioned in this text, but I think this is David's testimony of what happens when you Confront your pride, and when you humble yourself in God's presence. And I'd love to ask you, are there any ways in which your pride, even subtly, is getting in the way of you 
acknowledging that you have a cactus or, or that you've been cultivating a zero-scape garden of cacti is probably getting in the way of you really facing those things and giving them to God. And instead of hiding from God, finding a hiding place in God. You know, there's a phrase that is often said that um, how you know you believe the gospel is when you sin. If you run from God, you have not understood the gospel. But when you sin, if you, in fact, run to God, then you understand what the good news is all about, is that he's actually here for mercy and forgiveness and deliverance. Pride causes us to cover our sins and to cover our cacti. Pride causes us to hide from God. But at some point, we all have an opportunity, and I hope that this Lent, you, you will use this season as an opportunity to notice your pride, to notice where you're blinded by it, and to destroy it by humbling ourselves before God in prayer. There's a great quote on this. It goes like this. We are so easily blinded by pride. We hold back from confessing our sins and resist the work of repentance. We subtly interpret our gifts and blessings as signs of superiority over others. We assume it is better to be rich than poor, to be satisfied than hungry, to be buoyant than tearful. We readily form judgments of others and then downplay our own weaknesses. And if we've been Christians a long while, we grow overly confident in our understandings and are less open to instruction. Finally, we tend to put more stock in correct words than concrete actions. And here's the deal. You don't need any more teaching from me or from anyone on um, how to run to God and come into God's presence and to find a hiding place in Him. You don't need me to give you three simple things you need to do to move from hiding from to hiding in, and maybe they could all use alliteration. At the risk of being overly simplistic, all you need to do is come into God's presence and surrender and find safety and experience safety in Him. I don't think you need more instruction on how to do that. But I think a story um, might help give you some inspiration and maybe an imagination for how to do that. There's an old uh, story about a construction worker named Juan. And every day, Juan, when he would walk home from work after his shift ended about four o'clock, he would stop by his neighborhood Catholic church. And he would uh, walk in at four o'clock He'd sit on the back row, not talk to anybody, and he'd sit there for about 10 minutes, and then he'd leave. He'd do that every single day. After a few months of this, the parish priest came over and he noticed that Juan comes in every day at four o'clock. He sits down for 10 minutes and he leaves. And so um, the, the priest approached him and said, Juan, I, I see for months you've been coming in here and you're just sitting. And this seems like a really important and powerful place to you. Um, could you tell me more about that? And Juan said, oh, yes, you're right. This is a very important place. Uh, my time here is, is the most important part of my day. 
And the priest was like, wow, like that's, that's quite an encouragement. And so he asked Juan, he goes, well, like I noticed you don't go in the confessional booth. You don't go light a candle. You don't, do, you just come in and sit down and then leave. And he said, well, like, what are you, are you praying? What are you doing? And Juan said, oh, I come in and I sit down and all I say is, Jesus, it's one. And the priest kind of looks at him and is like, all right. Um, does Jesus say anything back? And Juan says, yeah. The priest says, well, what does he say? And Juan says, he says, uh, Juan, it's Jesus. And the priest is like, that's it. And Juan says, yeah, that's it. I come in and I sit down and I say, Jesus, it's Juan. And Jesus says, Juan, it's Jesus. And for the next 10 minutes, they just sit there and he experiences God's presence without, without praying or petitioning or interceding or, or like putting lots of effort into it. He just sits there in God's presence, quiet. And I, what I love about that story is sometimes we can we can get fixated on like, what do I have to do? And I got to really like work to study the scriptures and I got to work to fast and pray or to intercede or to do certain prayers or to, to have a, you know, a complex liturgy. And there's like certainly um, times and places and um, usefulness to all those things I just mentioned. And sometimes all we need to do is just stop our day Maybe for 60 seconds, maybe for five minutes, maybe for 10 minutes, maybe for 30 minutes or an hour or for a whole afternoon or whatever. The time really isn't that important. But what's important is just stopping and saying, Jesus, it's true. And I don't need to say anything else. I can just sit in God's presence and find that God's presence is safe and that it's a hiding place. I've been practicing this for a couple of weeks ever since I heard this story. And uh, sometimes I'm in my car and I'm coming home after a long day and I'm walking into a house with small children and I'm tired and I'll just sit in my truck and I'll just say, Jesus, it's true. And I'll just experience God's presence for a minute. And then I'll go in and be a dad and be a husband. There's times where um, I'll go on the river walk and I'll just walk for five minutes, sometimes for an hour, and just say, Jesus, it's true. And then just be with him as I walk and experience sunshine and fresh air birds chirping. You know, how you do it isn't necessarily that important. You can experiment with that and figure that out. But I think what is important is just showing up honestly, however you need to, however you can, wherever you are, and practice praying in a way where you are finding a hiding place in God. And if that feels like so much, perhaps you could try the Jesus, it's me, exercise. Often, whenever I experience this, it's kind of boring, and it's not anything to write home about, 
it's a good discipline to help me to slow down and experience God's presence, and there's fruit in that. So I want to encourage you, you don't have to do this for an hour. You don't have to do this in even a church building. You could do this for 60 seconds um, going into a meeting or in your car or in the bathroom. Um, All it has to be is honest. All it has to be is done in humility. So I want to provide some time right now We'll give a few minutes of stillness. I want to encourage you to, if it helps you to close your eyes or if you need to kneel or if you want to stand or if you want to sit or maybe you want to open your eyes and gaze out or whatever, however you need to do it, but to practice experiencing God's presence by simply humbling yourself and saying, Jesus, it's me. And open yourself to how God may meet you. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to meet us exactly where we are. I know you always will and you always do. And we ask you would give us eyes to see you in the mundane parts of life. What I ask you would shine light on where we are operating in pride and where we are blind to our cacti or our pain or our issues. Lord, shine a light on that. Help us to humble ourselves before you so that we can experience you covering our sin and you hiding us and you freeing us and you restoring our strength. 
Lord, grant us the courage that we need and at times the intestinal fortitude that is required to turn from our sin and to turn to you. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.